Revelation chapter 10. And uh, last week, as we looked at the um, fifth and sixth seals, uh, one of the th- or trumpets, uh, one of the things that we um, were focusing on is the patience of God. I, I pointed out to you that in the sounding of those trumpets, in uh, most of the cases, the, the number a third of was mentioned. And uh, we tend to focus on a third and we say, wow, that is a huge number of people who are suffering. But we need to focus on the two-thirds that are being spared. Uh, because God in His mercy is always extending His grace. And uh, he allows uh, sometimes uh, these calamities to occur in order to gain our attention. I reminded you that the goodness of God leads us to repentance. But if the goodness of God fails to do that, it's better still to come to repentance under the fear of God. Uh, Sometimes we um, want to see this in a one-sided fashion. And to have our lives shaken to the core, to have them threatened, uh, is to make us aware of our own mortality. And this should serve the purpose of making us think of eternity. Uh, God is gracious when He does that. It's not pleasant. It's not always, uh, you know, a fun uh, kind of experience. It's often quite the opposite but to bring us to the realization, even as I was mentioning in my prayer, that we are vulnerable. And those who do not know Jesus Christ have no hope. And part of God's effort is to to shake us, to to, to awaken us, and unbelievers to be shaken, uh, to turn to the Lord in those times. And so the the fifth and the sixth trumpets and all the ones uh, that preceded that, um, God was, yes, allowing judgment to come upon many, but sparing many more. Twice as many were spared as came under the judgment of those trumpets. And in chapters 10 and 11 this morning, as we look at uh, the continued... um, unfolding of the revelation to John, we see still that God is always reaching out, always making the effort to give people the opportunity to come to Him. You know, it occurred to me that God could have designed a very different kind of ending. Uh, Satan has been granted a certain amount of power for a while. We could delve deeply into all the theology of that and and go back to the beginning and spend a lot of time there. I don't know that that's necessary this morning. But suffice it to say that uh, because of man's sinful rebellion, Satan has been permitted for a season to afflict the human race. And God allows that, though he is still the one who has all authority and all power. And so the truth of the matter is, he could have designed 
the end of the human race and history in this era by simply cutting it off, destroying Satan, casting him in the lake of fire, and being done with everything. It could happen in the blink of an eye. And uh, the people that had never turned to Jesus uh, would be judged, and that would be the end. God could do that. But instead, God has chosen in His mercy to extend the period of time even using... And there's a verse in the Old Testament that used to bother me a great deal. And I'm sorry I can't quote the reference for you right now, but you can look it up. It says, God makes even the evil or the wicked to praise Him. And and you think about that and you say, what? What is that all about? And the reality is, is that in these end times, as the heat is turned up, and as Satan is released uh, with more and more um, anger and, and, and vengeance and wanting to uh, destroy the people of God, and the judgments of God are beginning to build up and intensify, rather than ending it all in the blink of an eye, God is continuing to extend His grace. He is giving human beings every possible opportunity to come to Him, to awaken from their lethargy and their their sinfulness, and to come to Him and turn to Him. And that is His loving kindness that delays. In fact, the Scripture makes that very clear. Peter says, God is not slack concerning His promise. Many times have you heard me quote that in this series so far, but it's something we need to bear in mind. God is not slack concerning His promise toward us. Jesus Christ is coming again. He's going to put an end to evil and establish a reign of righteousness. He is definitely uh, intent on doing that, but God is long-suffering. He is... Patient, he suffers long, not willing that any person should perish. He wants to give everyone the opportunity to come to the knowledge of the truth. So as we turn to Revelation 10 this morning and we look at uh, what John is seeing as happened with the seals that were broken, when we got toward the sixth seal, there was a pause. And John took a step back and began to tell us a little bit of the panorama of what was happening uh, in in the heavenly throne area where he was. The same thing occurs now. Uh, The sixth trumpet has sounded. And the seventh is about to sound. But before it does, <coughs> John uh, takes this hiatus, this moment of parentheses, and he steps back. And you remember last week I told you Revelation was kind of looking at, like looking at a mural on the wall. We could look at that mural of the vine 
uh, on the wall over here, and we see some verses here and some uh, attributes of God here, and we see some over there, and it's kind of hard to, to take it in all at once, and the closer you get, the less you can see of all of it. The further back you get, the more you can see. John's taking a step back, and he's giving us a, a, an idea of somewhat of a panorama of where we are in the unfolding of end-time events. And between the sixth and seventh trumpet, and the seventh trumpet is not just a single trumpet blast, but it is a, a series of trumpet sounding that mark the very end of this time of tribulation. So it goes on for a while. And as it transpires, we will see as we move a little further uh, down in Revelation, that the bowls of God's wrath are being poured out in this third great woe, the seventh trumpet. You remember that from chapter 9. So, beginning in chapter 10, we're stepping back and we're taking this panoramic overview. And John says, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun. His legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. Remember where John is. He's on the island of Patmos. We're suddenly coming back to earth to get this, the vision. And here's this angel. And he's facing John and he has his left foot on the land and his right foot on the sea. I don't know if that's Palestine and the Mediterranean or if that's Europe and the Atlantic Ocean. I don't know what it is, but I don't care how you figure this out. This is big. <laughs> this angel is, is huge. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. Can you imagine what that would have sounded like coming from somebody that could stand one foot on the land and one on the sea and that, the volume of that lung capacity? And when he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. I had a professor who used to say, uh, every time we get to one of those places in the gospel where Jesus would say, do you understand this? You know, and the disciples would say, yes, we understand it. He said, how I wish they had said, no, explain it to us. <laughs> I, I want to get it. <laughs> but, so we moved on and we didn't get the explanation. Well, John hears these seven thunders, but they're not explained to us. And there is no relationship to any other passage of Scripture that mentions the seven thunders. So we have nothing with which to compare. Uh, we don't know what these are. They've been sealed up until the time that they actually occur. And uh, then the angel I had seen, verse 5, standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven... And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, the sea and all that is in it, 
And he said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, and keep in mind that refers to a time frame, a period of time, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants the prophets. The mystery of God is twofold. When you go back and you study all the occurrences of mystery in Scripture, and you study the mystery particularly in the, um, in the uh, letters of the New Testament, the twofold aspect of the mystery is, first of all, the church. The church is a mystery that Jesus Christ would come and would give new life and new birth to people and build them into one body, which is His body, and that they would have their life derived directly from Jesus Christ and be born again as living, eternal people. Uh, This is the mystery of Christ in the church. The second aspect of the mystery is that God will bring together both Jew and Gentile. And He will take down the, uh, the barrier between Jew and Gentile and fold them together into one body. So that when we see the completed church at the end of the age, we will see Jew and Gentile alike together in one family, in one body, through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the mystery that was hidden from the ages, but has now been revealed, Paul says, to us in these last days. And so, uh, this mystery is about to be completed. And then he said, I heard the voice that came from heaven, verse 8, spoke to me once more, Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour, and I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. I want to read you a passage of Scripture from Psalm 19, where David writes, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. 
They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sin, that they may not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, enduring forever. Oops. Innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Here, David is talking about the delight of the word of God. How precious it is, how sweet it is, how refreshing it is. And the angel says to John, take this scroll and eat it. It will be sweeter than honey in your mouth. It will be a delight to you. Uh, You will enjoy and savor it. But when it comes to your stomach, it will be sour. What do you suppose the angel is explaining to John? What do you suppose he's really saying? Well, you knew I was going to tell you, didn't you? That's why you hesitated. (laughs) The Word of God is like that. To those of us who know the Lord, the Word of God is sweet. It's a delight. It's a joy to behold, to read, to meditate. Um, Joshua was told, let this book of the law be a part of your life and meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, then you'll have good success. You know, the word meditate comes from the the verb that reflects what a cow does to its cud. It's chewed. That's a graphic picture for you, isn't it? I won't go into all the details. (laughs) I'll spare you some of it. But the idea is that it it just, they savor. You're a cow, you like grass. Okay, you may not like grass, but cows like grass. And Joshua was to savor the word, to bring it up again and again, and to to chew on it and to think about it. and, And it was sweet and it was precious to him. But friends, the message of the Word of God to the unbeliever brings fear and judgment. You know, before someone can repent and trust Jesus Christ, they need to know they need a Savior. They need to become aware of the fact that they have sinned against a holy God. That they they are in trouble with God and they need to be reconciled to Him. And so, John is, if you look at the chapters in Revelation and you look at where we are, John is right in the middle of the Revelation. 
And the angel says to him, there's more things that you've got to prophesy. There are more things for you to tell. And they're not going to be well received. People are going to hate those who proclaim the truth. And even though the word is sweet to your mouth, in your stomach it's going to cause grief and bitterness because people will reject the word of God and they will turn away from you and they will turn away from the message. You know, I I used to attend Bible studies back in my much younger days about the end times and prophecy and revelation. And and those Bible studies, uh, you know, kind of, well, there was a sort of a sense that, yeah, the wicked are going to get it. God's going to pummel them, you know, they're going to, they're going to suffer. I, I didn't really connect all of the dots that I was one of those wicked at one point and that God had been merciful to me. And I want you to know this morning that God has given us a message and a testimony to share the good news of Jesus Christ. It's sweet to us. It is not sweet to everyone else. But we have a divine mandate to share that message. To communicate with unbelievers the love that God has for them. It should not be our desire to see them pummeled by the wrath of God. Because God Himself says, I take no pleasure in the punishment of the wicked. It does not give him joy to punish the ungodly. He longs for everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And that's the bitterness of the Word of God. What did Jesus do as He approached Jerusalem as He was coming in like a king? He wept over Jerusalem. And He said, how many times... I would have gathered you together as a mother hen gathers her chicks. How many times I would have folded you under my arms. How many times I would have embraced you. And you would not do it. And I love you. And you reject me. And you refuse me. And I've come to redeem you. And you resist me. It broke his heart. He wept over that. Friends, that needs to be the heart and attitude that we have. This is the message of the little book for John. That little book is sweet to us, but it creates an angst, a, a tension, a bitterness in our heart because unbelievers resist it and reject it. And we're going to see as we go along in chapter 11 that they get worse. He says, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, and languages. And then in chapter 11, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told to go measure the temple of God and the altar with his worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Don't measure it because it's been given to the Gentiles. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. That's three and a half years. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for a thousand two hundred and sixty days. That's also three and a half years. 
clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. You remember in the early part of Revelation, we read about Jesus walking among the seven candlesticks. And if we go back to Zechariah, I believe it's chapter 4, and we read in Zechariah that he had a vision of the Jewish menorah, the, the, the candelabra of seven candles, and on either side of it stood two olive trees, and the olive trees actually had a golden spout <laughs> that came right out of them and supplied the menorah, the, the candlesticks, with oil, with olive oil. And so this is the image of these two olive trees that are standing before the Lord, uh, supplying the oil, as it were, for the candlesticks. A lot of symbolism and richness in that. And if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have the power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesied. During they, they are prophesying and they have the power to turn water to blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Who does that remind you of? Elijah and Moses. Elijah who commanded that it would not rain and it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again and the Lord sent the rain. And Moses who turned the Nile to blood and brought plagues upon the earth. I'm not saying these are Elijah and Moses, but these two witnesses come in the spirit of Elijah and Moses and in the power of Elijah and Moses. And they bring a powerful message of, uh, of the gospel and of judgment to come. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and, and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. What do you think that is? Where was Jesus crucified? Wasn't it outside the city walls of Jerusalem? Here Jerusalem is referred to as that apostate people, Sodom and Egypt, who have turned away from God. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. In the Middle East, one of the greatest insults that you can give to a person is to leave their dead body lying out unburied. I mean, that is like the, the final uh, dagger in the heart, so to speak, the, the greatest insult that they could give. And they're going to leave these bodies laying, these two witnesses laying in Jerusalem. And the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Here are two witnesses who are proclaiming the, the message of the gospel. They have been preaching the word of God. They have been warning of judgment. Of course, people have opposed them and it has been... Uh, dire consequences for those who did, but they have been uh, heralding the coming judgments of God and offering the opportunity of repentance. And they have been particularly proclaiming the news to Jerusalem and to the Jewish people. And they have resisted. 
And now that they're dead, the people of the world are giving each other gifts. You know, in our lifetime, we could not have imagined that anyone could see this happening all around the world. But today, we can now see how that could be so easily done. Boy, right now, all we have to do is have somebody with a camera and the newscast, and you can see anything that's happening anywhere in the world in real time. It's amazing how times have changed that bring us to a state where so many things in Revelation are easily understood that weren't understood 30 years ago. Now we can understand how these things will happen. And the people are going to send one another gifts because the prophets had tormented those who lived on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of the life from God entered them. They stood on their feet. Can you imagine? If you were standing there and saw these two take a breath and stand up. I mean, they've already begun to putrefy in the hot sun. And suddenly they are full of life and they're standing up. And they hear a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. I don't know if this is exactly the rapture or a type of the rapture. But that's what's going to happen for everyone who has faith in Jesus Christ. There will come a moment when the dead in Christ will rise up. And we which are alive at that moment uh, will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. This is our promise and our assurance And at that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. I'm going to stop there this morning, but friends, I I want to remind us that our God is a God of amazing patience, amazing power, and amazing love. To remind us that He is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. And that if you have in your heart and in your uh, mouth and in your mind the Word of God that is sweet to you, it is a sad bitterness to those who reject it. We have a mission. We have a divine mandate until the end of time to work for the night is coming when our work is finally done. But until that very last moment to proclaim the truth, to offer the news of repentance and faith toward Jesus Christ. I wonder this morning if there's anyone here who has not made that decision. 
God is being very patient with you. He is long-suffering toward you. He loves you. He is waiting for you to make that decision. The scripture says, the person who stiffens their neck, being often reproved, shall suddenly be cut off without remedy. There will come a time in everyone's life when they have resisted the message to the point of no return. Until that moment, God is waiting patiently and yearning for you to come to Him. Do you know for sure this morning that you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you know for sure today that you're going to spend eternity with Him? Do you know that you will be a participant in the rapture of the church? If you don't, I want to urge you this morning, right where you sit, right now, not to wait any longer, but to open your heart, to turn from your selfish, sinful ways, to ask the Lord Jesus Christ to cleanse you of all sin, and to cause you to be born again to a living hope and purpose to follow Him all the days of your life. Every one of us is going to die one day. That's not an option. The question is, where will we spend eternity? We have that option this morning to make. What will your choice be? Father, I pray this morning in Jesus' name that if there's anyone here that needs to make that decision to follow you today, that they would do so. That they would turn from their sin, turn from their self-will, and turn to you as their Lord and Master the one who shed his blood for their sin, the one who has risen to give them life, the one who promises to see them safely home to the heavenly kingdom. Lord, give them grace to make that decision this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.